Abolition. Abolition. Just as I had come to differ with the Garrisonian school of abolition on such questions as the interpretation of the Constitution, dissolution of the Union, and political action, so too I differed on the important issue of the possibility of the peaceful abolition of slavery. For years, I had believed in the Garrisonian doctrine that through moral suasion and peaceful methods alone, the slave system could be abolished. But I gradually lost confidence in this doctrine, especially after I came to know and discuss this issue with a man whose character and conversation and whose objects and aims in life made a very deep impression upon my mind and heart. This man was Captain John Brown, whose name has now passed into history as one of the most marked characters and greatest heroes known to American fame. I first met this remarkable man at his home in Springfield, Massachusetts in the year 1847. In our conversation after dinner, he denounced slavery in language fierce and bitter, thought that slaveholders had forfeited their right to life, and that the slaves had the right to gain their liberty in any way they could and did not believe that moral suasion would ever liberate the slave. He thought the practice of carrying arms would be a good one for colored people to adopt, as it would give them a sense of their manhood. No people, he said, could have self-respect or be respected who would not fight for their freedom. When I suggested that we might convert the slaveholders, he became very much excited and said that could never be that they would never be induced to give up their slaves until they felt a big stick about their heads. From this night spent with John Brown, while I continued to write and speak about slavery, I became all the same less hopeful of its peaceful abolition. My utterances became more and more tinged by the color of this man's strong impressions. Speaking at an anti-slavery convention in Boston in June 1849, I expressed the belief that slavery could only be destroyed by bloodshed and said that I should welcome the intelligence tomorrow, should it come, that the slaves had risen in the South and that the sable arms which had been engaged in beautifying and adorning the South were engaged in spreading death and devastation. Later, at an anti-slavery convention in Salem, Ohio, when I expressed the same view that slavery could only be destroyed by bloodshed, I was suddenly interrupted by a good old friend of mine, that courageous colored woman, Sojourner Truth, with the question, Frederick, is God dead? No, I answered, and because God is not dead, slavery can only end in bloodshed. My quaint old sister was of the Garrison School of Non-Resistance and was shocked at my sanguinary doctrine. But she too became an advocate of the sword when the war for the maintenance of the Union was finally declared. Ain't nobody get to sit this one out, you hear me? Uh, my mind's filled with mind frills. The ashes fall, the wine spills. The world stops, drops and rolls. It's judgment day or fire drill. Yeah. I pour out my heart, have a drink. They say the drunk never lie, they ain't never lie. Yeah. My country tis of thee, 
Sweet land of kill them all and let them die God bless America uh, This old God bless America Her tomorrow ain't promised today The end of time is like an hour away Damn, military minded Lost and can't find it The stars on the flag are never shining I saw a butterfly in hell today Will I die or go to jail today? Cause I live by the sword And die by the sword Her police was looking for me I'ma hide by a broad Shoot stars in my pocket Bitch sit on my rocket I'm wired off the socket But still shocking Everybody wanna tell me what I need You can play a role in my life but not the lead If there's food for thought, then I'm guilty of greed Mama said, take what you want, I took heed yeah. Ain't nobody get to sit this one out, you hear me? Girl, and she's so sweet. Got cavities. Granted, we do it for vanity, not humanity. But what's appealing to me is under banana trees, love. I go so hard. I tried to pay homage, but I was overcharged. Ain't that a bitch? I'm just a nut trying to bust a nut in a nutshell. Used to say fuck the police, now I say fuck jail. Uh, same shit, different air freshener. Play, boy. I ain't you half Trying to be a step ahead But a few feet behind Two fingers to my head Pop, peace of mind I be in the cloud Cloud number nine And I just fuck the clock And let it come with time It's a cold world I put on a mink There's a chain of commands I'm the missing link Yeah God bless America This old godless America I heard tomorrow ain't promised today And I'm smoking on the flowers Catch the bouquet And we live by the soul Die by the soul Her police looking for me I'ma hide by a broad Shooting stars in my pocket Bitch sitting on my rocket I'm wired out the socket But still shocking everybody Saw a butterfly in hell today. Will I die or go to jail today? You don't have it in you to take up arms against the injustice. Then you gotta pray another prayer. And you gotta walk in it with conviction. He will provide, but you gotta do your part. You gotta find what it means for you to be a soldier. Beat back those that are trying to kill everything good and right in the world and call it making it great again. We can't afford to be just citizens in a time. That'll be surrender. That'll be giving up our future and our souls. Ain't nobody get to sit this one out. You hear me? You hear me?
abolition, 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 abolition today, today, today. During my first meeting with John Brown, he told me that he had long had a plan which would accomplish the abolition of the slave system. He called my attention to a map of the United States and pointed out to me the far-reaching Alleghenies, which stretch away from the borders of New York into the southern states. These mountains, he said, are the basis of my plan. God has given the strength of the hills to freedom. They were placed here for the emancipation of the Negro race. My plan is to take at first about 25 picked men and begin on a small scale, supply them with arms and ammunition, post them in squads of five on a line of 25 miles, the most persuasive and judicious of whom shall go down to the fields from time to time as opportunity offers and induce the slaves to join them, seeking and selecting the most reckless and daring. They would run off the slaves in large numbers, retain the brave and strong ones in the mountains, and send the weak and timid to the north by the Underground Railroad. His operations would be enlarged with increasing number and would not be confined to one locality. He further proposed to have a number of stations from the line of Pennsylvania to the Canadian border where such slaves as he might, through his men, and used to run away, should be supplied with food and shelter and be forwarded from one station to another till they should reach a place of safety either in Canada or the northern states. Hating slavery as I did and making its abolition the object of my life, I was ready to welcome any new mode of attack upon the slave system which gave any promise of success. I readily saw that this plan could be made very effective in rendering slave property in Maryland and Virginia valueless by rendering it insecure. Hence, I assented to this, John Brown's scheme or plan for running off the slaves. Late in September 1859, John Brown wrote to me, informing me that a beginning in his work would soon be made and that before going forward, he wanted to see me and appointed an old stone quarry near Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, as our place of meeting. When I reached Chambersburg, we talked over the enterprise which was about to be undertaken. Captain Brown now declared that it was his settled purpose to take the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry, and he wanted to know what I thought of it. I at once opposed the measure with all the arguments at my command. To me, such a measure would be fatal to running off slaves, as was the original plan, and fatal to all engaged in doing so. It would be an attack upon the federal government and would array the whole country against us. Our talk was long and earnest. We spent the most of Saturday and a part of Sunday in this debate, Brown for Harper's Ferry and I against it. He for striking a blow which would instantly rouse the country and I for the policy of gradually and unaccountably drawing off the slaves to the mountains as at first suggested and proposed by him. When I found that he had fully made up his mind and could not be dissuaded, I told him that his old plan was changed and that I could not go with him. In parting, he put his arms around me in a manner more than friendly and said, Come with me, Douglas. I will defend you with my life. I want you for a special purpose. When I strike, the bees will begin to swarm and I shall want you to help hive them. But my discretion, or my cowardice, made me proof against the dear old man's eloquence. Perhaps it was something of both which determined my course. When about to leave, I asked Shields Green, a fugitive slave from South Carolina who had joined Brown, what he had decided to do, and was surprised by his coolly saying in his broken way, I believe I'll go with the old man. 
Here we separated. They to go to Harper's Ferry. I to Rochester. On the evening when the news came that John Brown had taken and was then holding the town of Harper's Ferry, I was speaking to a large audience in National Hall, Philadelphia. As I expected, the next day brought the news that with two or three men, he had fortified and was holding a small engine house, but that he was surrounded by a body of Virginia militia, who thus far had not ventured to capture the insurgents, but that escape was impossible. A few hours later, and word came that Colonel Robert E. Lee, with a company of United States troops, had made a breach in Captain Brown's fort and had captured him alive, though mortally wounded. His carpet bag had been secured, and it was found to contain numerous letters and documents which directly implicated me along with several others. This intelligence was soon followed by a telegram saying that we were all to be arrested. My friends urged me to move out of Philadelphia at once. I reached New York at night, still under the apprehension of arrest at any moment, and by devious means I finally reached Rochester in safety, but had been there but a few moments when I was informed that the governor of the state would certainly surrender me on a proper requisition from the governor of Virginia. My friends advised me to quit the country, which I did, going to Canada. From Canada, I sent a letter to the Rochester Democrat and American, in which, among other things, I wrote, I may be asked why I did not join John Brown, the noble old hero whose one right hand has shaken the foundation of the American Union, and whose ghost will haunt the bedchambers of all the born and unborn slaveholders of Virginia through all generations, filling them with alarm and consternation. My answer to this is, the tools to those who can use them. Let every man work for the abolition of slavery in his own way. I would help all and hinder none.
Though in Canada and under British law, it was not impossible that I might be kidnapped and taken to Virginia. England had given me shelter and protection when the slave hounds were on my tracks 14 years before, and her gates were still open to me now that I was pursued in the name of Virginia. So on the 12th of November, 1859, I took passage from Quebec on board the steamer Scotia, bound for Liverpool. On reaching Liverpool, I learned that England was nearly as much alive as to what had happened at Harper's Ferry as the United States, and I was immediately called upon in different parts of the country to speak on the subject of slavery, and especially to give some account of the men who had thus flung away their lives in a desperate attempt to free the slaves. After six months in England, news reached me from home of the death of my beloved daughter Annie, the light and life of my home. Deeply distressed by this bereavement and acting upon the impulse of the moment, regardless of the peril, I at once resolved to return home and took the first outgoing steamer for Portland, Maine. After a rough passage of 17 days, I reached home by way of Canada. Great changes had now taken place in the public touching the John Brown raid. Virginia had satisfied her thirst for blood. She had not given Captain Brown the benefit of a reasonable doubt, but hurried him to the scaffold in panic-stricken haste. Emerson's prediction that Brown's gallows would become like the cross was already being fulfilled. The old hero in the trial hour had behaved so grandly that men regarded him not as a murderer, but as a martyr. His body was in the dust, but his soul was marching on. In a letter to a group of abolitionists assembling on July 4th, 1860, to do honor to the memory of John Brown, I wrote, To have been acquainted with John Brown, shared his counsels, enjoyed his confidence, and sympathized with the great objects of his life and death, I esteem as among the highest privileges of my life. We do but honor to ourselves in doing honor to him, for it implies the possession of qualities akin to his. Though called home from Europe by one of the saddest events that can afflict the domestic circle, my presence here was fortunate, since it enabled me to participate in the most important and memorable presidential canvass ever witnessed in the United States, and to labor for the election of a man who in the order of events was destined to do a greater service to his country and to mankind than any man who had gone before him in the presidential office. That man was Abraham Lincoln, the candidate of the then young, growing, and united Republican Party. Against both Stephen A. Douglas and John C. Breckinridge, candidates of the divided Democratic Party, Abraham Lincoln proposed his grand historic doctrine of the power and duty of the national government to prevent the spread and perpetuity of slavery. Into this contest I threw myself with firmer faith and more ardent hope than ever before, and what I could do by pen or voice to achieve the election of Lincoln was done with a will. The most remarkable and memorable feature of this presidential campaign was that it was prosecuted under the portentous shadow of a threat, leading public men of the South openly proclaimed that they would proceed to take the slaveholding states out of the Union in the event of the election of Abraham Lincoln. This threat frightened the timid, but stimulated the brave, 
And the result was the triumphant election of Abraham Lincoln. John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies moldering in the grave. But his soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But his soul is marching. That the slave might be free John Brown died That the slave might be free John Brown died That the slave might be free But his soul is marching on Now has come our glorious jubilee His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But his soul. South do about it? Will she eat her bold words and submit to the verdict of the people or proceed to secede from the Union? The inquiry was an anxious one, and the blood of the North stood still waiting for the response. 
it had not long to wait. The response of the slaveholders to the glorious assertion of freedom and independence on the part of the North in the triumphant election of Abraham Lincoln was the dismemberment of the Republic and the establishment of the Confederate States, a government based upon human slavery. As a result of the shameful and shocking course followed by President Buchanan, one after another of the southern states were allowed to secede. Even men who had heretofore resisted the slave power bent before the southern storm and were ready to purchase peace at any price, especially at the expense of the Negro slaves. Everything that could be demanded by insatiable pride and selfishness on the part of the slaveholding South or could be surrendered by abject fear and servility on the part of the North, had able and eloquent advocates. Happily for the cause of human freedom and for the final unity of the American nation, the South was mad and would listen to no concessions. They had made up their minds that they would secede from the Union. They had come to hate everything which had the prefix free, free soil, free states, free territories, free schools, free speech, and freedom generally, and they would have no more such prefixes. And so the slaveholders plunged madly into the bloody vortex of rebellion and war. On April 12, 1861, the batteries of Charleston Harbor in South Carolina were opened upon the starving garrison at Fort Sumter. In a moment, the northern lamb was transformed into a lion. Gone were the months of appeasement when politicians and businessmen had vied with each other to purchase peace and prosperity for the North by granting the most demoralizing concessions to the slave power. The cannons booming over Charleston compelled everyone to elect between patriotic fidelity and pro-slavery and treason. As the North took to arms, I wrote in my paper, we say out of a full heart, and on behalf of our enslaved and bleeding brothers, thank God. From the first, I, for one, saw in this war the end of slavery. And truth requires me to say that my interest in the success of the North was largely due to this belief. True it is that this faith was many times shaken by passing events, but never destroyed. When Secretary Seward instructed our ministers to say to the governments to which they were accredited, that terminate however it might, the status of no class of the people of the United States would be changed by the rebellion, that the slaves would be slaves still, that the masters still. When General McClellan and General Butler warned the slaves in advance that if any attempt was made by them to gain their freedom, it would be suppressed with an iron hand. When the government persistently refused to employ colored troops I still believed, and spoke as I believed, all over the North, that the mission of the war was the liberation of the slave, as well as the salvation of the Union. And hence, from the first, I reproached the North that they fought the rebels with only one hand when they might strike effectively with two, that they fought with their soft white hand while they kept their black iron hand chained and helpless behind them, that they fought the effect while they protected the cause, and that the Union cause would never prosper till the war assumed an anti-slavery attitude and the Negro was enlisted 
on the loyal side. In every way possible, in the columns of my paper and on the platform, by letters to friends at home and abroad, I did all that I could do to impress this conviction upon the country. Many and grievous disasters on the field of battle were needed to educate the loyal nation and President Lincoln up to the realization of the necessity, not to say the justice, of the position that the war could only be won by freeing the slave and arming the freedmen. Concrete bricks, bulletproof us So proud of these walls that are built to defend and protect This bold heart, this bold heart But the way you marched into my home, not few Big army with a weapon on your arm Yes, you struck straight with your cold heart Your cold heart I'm like Nat, I'm like Nat I'm a man of God, but where is Christ at? And even though my name is Nas, I am like Nat is this me declaring war white flags? I now know why I was even born to strike back A full moon up in the sky, that's a sign that It's time to get my liberation, a perfect configuration It's the birth of a nation, midwife black Mother, father, Caucasian, my blood Indian native So now I'm contemplating being like Nat About to show you what I'm made of, I'm what race is all afraid of No mule in the 40 acres and despite that Watch out for the traitors, and when they say make America great again, do they mean make us all slaves again? Don't be sidetracked. No, we will never wave the white flag, the white flag. So you think I'm gonna run now? No, the time has come to fight back, to fight back. This is me declaring war. Wanna be a victim no more Depicted as a criminal, especially when you're poor Why doesn't the government order capital punishment to officers Who racial profile and put slugs in us Makes me think they want us to stink On the brink of insanity We screaming for justice, they send tanks Demanding me, demanding we protect the family Anarchy, Ku Klux Klan and him demanding He damaged me, so my fantasy is every single one of us Come against the evil divided people, it's common sense The theory, I hope the whole world hear me no justice So I became a revolutionary no matter if you're red, white, black If you want freedom, then we're all like men No, we will never wave the white flag, white flag. The white flag. white flag So you think I'm gonna run It's time for a better America It's a little Nat Turner in every one of us No matter if you're red, white, black If you want freedom then we're all like Nat
time Let the spirit of Nat Turner live Forever Abolition, Abolition Day The 1st of January 1863 was a memorable day in the progress of American liberty and civilization it was the turning point in the conflict between freedom and slavery. A death blow was then given to the slaveholding rebellion. And now, on this first day of January, 1863, the formal and solemn announcement was made that thereafter the government would be found on the side of emancipation. The Emancipation Proclamation changed everything. It gave a new direction to the councils of the cabinet and to the conduct of the national arms. As I studied the proclamation more carefully, it became clear to me that it was extremely defective. Its operations were confined within certain geographical and military lines. It only abolished slavery where it did not exist and left it intact where it did exist. Nevertheless, I took the proclamation first and last for a little more than it purported and saw in its spirit life and power far beyond its letter. Its meaning to me was the entire abolition of slavery, wherever the evil could be reached by the federal arm, and I saw that its moral power would extend much further. It was, in my estimation, an immense gain to have the war for the Union committed to the extinction of slavery, even from a military necessity. On January 20, 1863, Governor John A. Andrew of Massachusetts received permission from Mr. Lincoln to raise two colored regiments, the 54th and 55th. Immediately I wrote my call, Men of Color to Arms, addressed to the colored citizens of the North. It appeared in my paper and was published in the leading journals. I concluded on the following note. The chance is now given you to end in a day the bondage of centuries and to rise in one bound from social degradation to the plane of common equality with all other varieties of men. Remember Denmark Vesey of Charlestown. Remember Nathaniel Turner of Southampton. Remember Shields Green in Copeland, who followed noble John Brown and fell as glorious martyrs for the cause of the slave. Remember that in a contest with oppression, the Almighty has no attributes which can take sides with the oppressors. The case is before you. This is our golden opportunity. Let us accept it and forever wipe out the dark reproaches unsparingly hurled against us by our enemies. Let us win for ourselves the gratitude of our country and the blessings of our posterity through all time. The raising of these two regiments, the 54th and 55th, and their splendid behavior in South and North Carolina was the beginning of good things for the colored people of the whole country and not the least satisfaction I now have in contemplating my humble part in raising them is the fact that my two sons, Charles and Louis, were the two first in the state of New York to enlist in them. I continued to assist in raising regiments of Negro soldiers, using every argument of which I was capable to persuade every colored man able to bear arms to rally around the flag and help save the country and save the race. But the attitude of the government at Washington caused me deep sadness and discouragement and forced me in a measure to suspend my efforts in that direction. I had assured colored men that once in the Union Army they would be paid upon an equal footing with other soldiers 
that they would be paid, promoted, and exchanged as prisoners of war. But thus far, the government had not kept its promise, nor the promise made for it. You want my dollars to flourish the land, but still treat me like three-fifths of a man. Help me understand, you pussy. Never been known to gain the upper hand. That's why it's so easy for you to kill a man. The pipes is busted, pressure and tip the scale. Either give us heaven on earth, or we'll all live in hell. live in fear you play with our emotions for way too long the sympathy is gone it's time to even the score give us justice or we'll give you war respect peace equal all power to the people Oh, 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 oh,
abolition today. In my efforts to secure just and fair treatment for the colored soldiers, I went to Washington to lay the complaints of my people before President Lincoln and the Secretary of War and to urge upon them such action as should secure to the colored troops then fighting for the country a reasonable degree of fair play. I was never more quickly or more completely put at ease in the presence of a great man than in that of Abraham Lincoln. As I approached and was introduced to him, he rose and extended his hand and bade me welcome. Proceeding to tell him who I was and what I was doing, he promptly but kindly stopped me, saying, I know who you are, Mr. Douglas. Mr. Seward has told me all about you. Sit down. I'm glad to see you. I then told him the object of my visit, and that there were three particulars which I wished to bring to his attention. First, that colored soldiers ought to receive the same wages as those paid to white soldiers. Second, that colored soldiers ought to receive the same protection when taken prisoners and be exchanged as readily and on the same terms as any other prisoners. And if Jefferson Davis should shoot or hang colored soldiers in cold blood, the United States should retaliate in kind and degree without delay upon Confederate prisoners in its hand. Third, when colored soldiers performed great and uncommon service on the battlefield, they should be rewarded by distinction and promotion precisely as white soldiers are rewarded for like services. Mr. Lincoln listened with patience and silence to all I had to say. He began his earnest reply by saying that the employment of colored troops at all was a great gain to the colored people, that the measure could not have been successfully adopted at the beginning of the war, that the wisdom of making colored men soldiers was still doubted, that their enlistment was a serious offense to popular prejudice, that they had larger motives for being soldiers than white men, that they ought to be willing to enter the service upon any conditions, that the fact that they were not to receive the same pay as white soldiers seemed a necessary concession to smooth the way to their employment at all as soldiers, but that ultimately they would receive the same. On the second point, in respect to equal protection, he said the case was more difficult. Retaliation was a terrible remedy and one which it was very difficult to apply. He thought that the rebels themselves would stop such barbarous warfare, and less evil would be done if retaliation were not resorted to. On the third point, he appeared to have less difficulty, though he did not absolutely commit himself. He simply said that he would sign any commission to colored soldiers whom his Secretary of War should commend to him. Though I was not entirely satisfied with his views, I was so well satisfied with the man and with the educating tendency of the conflict that I determined to go on with the recruiting. I was not satisfied either with my interview with Secretary of War Stanton, yet I left in the full belief that the true course to the black man's freedom and citizenship was over the battlefield, and that my business was to get every black man I could into the Union armies. Both the President and Secretary of War assured me that justice would ultimately be done to my race and I gave full faith and credit to their promise. Left, 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 right, left. My dad went to war and became a G.I. Joe. He came home, couldn't get the G.I. Bill, though. That was affirmative action, but only for the white folks. Hey. 
Impatiently you waited for Lincoln's proclamation and implantations in this nation, but that's not what's stated on his New Year's declaration. Blatantly he said that only slaves in Confederation are the ones emancipated. What about Cousin Joe, Mary, and Caitlin? Slaves on the Northern Maryland plantation. Can you feel elated when those of your relation are still stuck in damnation just because of their location? You're feeling agitated. It builds to aggravation while the others celebrating some all your aspiration. You're feeling like the Haitian when he started revolution should be cruising, strapped and shooting, clapping masses. Ovation, cook your occupation though. Killers not your station. You grow dough and cut potatoes. You know Django in the making. You're gonna need some training. Proclamation calls for black participation. 54th Massachusetts Infantry, you gonna take I don't it. know what you've been told. Black soldiers were brave and bold. Fighting for democracy overseas. Better home, no justice they receive. Tell me what would you do with yourself in their shoes? Would you fight for a country who don't even fight for you? Would you die for some rights when yours are abused? Would you kill for a cause that ain't yours? Black soldiers salute. Black soldiers salute. Black soldiers salute. You start to think that Europe should be your new place of residence Cause looking at your skin doesn't make people so hesitant Fight and earn the name Black Death Killing specialists But only France awards your valor They make you a medalist German propaganda says to switch side in the exodus Would you fight for country where racism is prevalent? I don't know what you've been told Black soldiers were brave and bold Fighting for democracy overseas Better home, no justice they receive Tell me what would you do with yourself in their shoes? Would you fight for a country who don't even It's no wonder Kaepernick couldn't just stand up and be quiet. He must have read about those red summer race riots where black soldiers who served their World War One assignment came home to a murderous, racist, violent climate. How the Tuskegee Airmen, the world's finest, never lost a bomber when escorting their assignment. Protecting white pilots' lives, flying like linemen. They came home to see giant whites only signing. 54th Mass, died in Fort Wag, 9th and 10th Cav. They were all black and ended up dying for a country that defied them. The liberty that's implied in the flag that William Harvey Carney gave his life flying. While some continue griping by the men protesting silent, I'm admiring black veterans who fought for his rights and they are the brave. This is their home, even though it calls them slaves in the third verse of the song. No refuge could save the hireling and slave from the terror of flight or the gloom of the grave and the star-spangled banner in triumph of the free home of the brave lincoln said he wasn't even going free to slaves abolition it was my good fortune to be present at abraham lincoln's inauguration in march 1865 after his re-election as president and to hear on that occasion 
his remarkable inaugural address. A series of important events followed soon after the second inauguration of Mr. Lincoln, conspicuous amongst which was the fall of Richmond. The collapse of the rebellion was now not long delayed, though it did not perish, without adding to its long list of atrocities, one which sent a thrill of horror throughout the civilized world in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, a man so amiable, so kind, so humane and honest, that one is at a loss to know how he could have had an enemy on earth. I was in Rochester when the news of Mr. Lincoln's death was received. Our citizens, not knowing what else to do in the agony of the hour, betook themselves to City Hall. Though all hearts ached for utterance, few felt like speaking. But I was called upon and spoke out of the fullness of my heart. And happily, I gave expression to so much of the soul of the people present that my voice was several times utterly silenced by the sympathetic tumult of the great audience. I have resided long in Rochester and made many speeches there which more or less touched the hearts of my hearers. But never till this day was I brought into such close accord with them. When the war for the Union was substantially ended and peace dawned upon the land, when the gigantic system of American slavery was finally abolished and forever prohibited by the organic law of the land, a strange feeling came over me. My great and exceeding joy over these stupendous achievements, especially over the abolition of slavery, which had been the deepest desire and the great labor of my life, was slightly tinged with a feeling of sadness. The anti-slavery platform had performed its work, and my voice was no longer needed. What should I do? The answer was not long in coming. Though slavery was abolished, the wrongs of my people were not ended. Though they were not slaves, they were not yet quite free. No man can be truly free whose liberty is dependent upon the thought, feeling, and action of others, and who has himself no means in his own hands for guarding, protecting, defending, and maintaining that liberty. Yet the Negro, after his emancipation, was precisely in this state of destitution. The law on the side of freedom is of great advantage only where there is power to make that law respected. The government felt that it had done enough for the former slaves. It had made them free, and henceforth they must make their own way in the world. Yet they had none of the conditions for self-preservation or self-protection. They were free from the individual masters, but the slaves of society. The old master class simply drove them off the plantation and told them they were no longer wanted there. I therefore soon found that the Negro still had a cause and that he needed my voice and pen with others to plead for it. I called upon the government to assist the landless Negroes of the South by colonizing them on lands abandoned by the slaveholders as they had retreated before the advancing Union Army. I urged further that these former slaves be equipped with implements to till the soil and arms to defend themselves. From the first, I saw no chance of bettering the condition of the freedmen, 
until he should cease to be merely a freedman and should become a citizen. I insisted that there was no safety for him, nor for anybody else in America outside the American government, that to God, protect, and maintain his liberty, the freedman should have the ballot, that the liberties of the American people were dependent upon the ballot box, the jury box, and the cartridge box, that without these, no class of people could live and flourish in this country. And this was now the word for the hour with me, and the word to which the people of the North willingly listened when I spoke. However, regarding as I did, the elective franchise as one of the great powers by which all civil rights are obtained, enjoyed, and maintained under our form of government, and the one without which freedom to any class is delusive if not impossible, I set myself to work with whatever force and energy I possessed to secure this power for the recently emancipated millions. Suffering and worsens Black human packages Tied up in strings Black rage can come from all These kinds of things Black rage is founded on Blatant denial Squeeze economics Subsistence survival Deafening silence And social control Black rage is founded on Wounds in the soul When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds of things, and then I don't fear so bad. Black rage founded, fed us self-hatred, lies and abuse, while we waited and waited, spiritual treason, this grid and its cages, black rage is founded on these kinds of
abolition, abolition, abolition. Unlike the movement for the abolition of slavery, the success of the effort for the enfranchisement of the freedmen was not long delayed. In addition to the justice of the measure, it was soon commended by events as a political necessity. As in the case of the abolition of slavery, the white people of the rebellious states have themselves to thank for its adoption. Had they accepted with moderate grace the liberal conditions of peace offered to them and united heartily with the national government in its efforts to reconstruct their shattered institutions instead of sullenly refusing as they did their counsel and their votes to that end, they might have easily defeated the argument based upon the necessity for the measure. But their apparent determination to re-enslave the Negro in some new form of slavery made it essential that the freedmen obtain the shield of the ballot box. Consequently, there came in due time the great amendments to the Constitution, the 14th and 15th, which invested colored men with citizenship and the right to vote. The adoption of the 14th and 15th Amendments and their incorporation into the Constitution of the United States caused many of my former associates in the cause of the Negro to believe that their work was finished. Some even cautioned me against demanding too much for the colored people. They reminded me that only a decade ago Negroes were slaves without any rights and that in an amazingly short time they had been freed and transformed into American citizens and even given the right to vote. Instead of retiring from the field, I once again flung myself into the battle to assist through my speeches and writings in the removal of the hardships and wrongs which continued to be the lot of the colored people of this country. What I said and wrote during these years can best be summed up in the statement I made during my speech in Washington, D.C. in April 1883. What Abraham Lincoln said in respect to the United States is as true of the colored people as of the relation of those states. They cannot remain half slave and half free. You must give them all or take from them all. Until this half and half condition is ended, there will be a just ground of complaint. You will have an aggrieved class and this discussion will go on until the public schools shall cease to be caste schools in every part of this country this discussion will go on until the colored man's pathway to the american ballot box north and south shall be as smooth and as safe as the same is for the white citizen this discussion will go on until the colored man's right to practice at the bars of our courts and sit upon juries shall be the universal law and practice of the land, this discussion will go on. Until the courts of the country shall grant the colored man a fair trial and a just verdict, this discussion will go on. Until color cease to be a bar to equal participation in offices and honors of the country, this discussion will go on. Until the trade unions and the workshops of the country shall cease to proscribe the colored man and prevent his children from learning useful trades, this discussion will go on. Until the American people shall make character and not color the criterion of respectability, this discussion will go on. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. 
I can remember when as a boy I sat on Kennard's Wharf at the foot of Philpot Street in Baltimore and saw men and women chained and put on the ship to go to New Orleans. I then resolved that whatever power I had should be devoted to the freeing of my race. Thereafter, in the midst of all opposition, I have endeavored to fulfill my pledge. Forty years of my life have been given to the cause of my people, and if I had forty years more, they should all be sacredly given to that great cause. Just gotta get some things off my chest. Tough times, I hope y'all holding up. We will be high because we always is. But I'm feeling like this. How many mothers have to cry? Brothers gotta die How many more times How many more times How many more marches How many more signs How many more lives How many more times Take a look around Can you see it now? Don't be colorblind when they're killing mine, they'll try to justify it. Oh, each and every time Playing in the park, taking you a jog Sitting on the couch, in your own house Never seen a matter what we do You think we don't matter, but we do You got a problem cause the city on fire But you're quiet when niggas die Not the soul about that body that we buried God, now you no longer have to worry It's so hard to sing these words out loud All these beautiful, precious black lives Lost in the name of senseless white pride Tears falling from us How many mothers have to cry? How many brothers gotta die? How many more times? How many more times? How many more
Abolition. Abolition. How many more times? How many more marches? How many more lives? You just listened to 18 episodes of Bridging the Gap with Ossie Davis reading Frederick Douglass. It's from 1966. We've been learning from the ancestors themselves. And all of that was paired up with music from our abolitionist playlist, which is available at youtube.com slash abolition today. Just click the music playlist and you'll be able to enjoy all the songs you heard here tonight and much, much more. This is part two and we're coming to the conclusion, which is the final word from Frederick Douglass as read by Ossie Davis. Be sure to tune in on January 3rd when we come back for season two. And our special guest will be Messiah Ram Kasum. You are definitely not going to miss that. So until then, heed the words of Frederick Douglass and think about abolition, abolition today. Abolition. Peace. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. What men want and what they will, working for a dollar bill. Sad to see the old slave mill, it's grinding slow but grinding still. Walking home, a youth gets killed, police free to shoot at will. Sad to see the old slave mill, it's grinding slow but grinding still. Nine to five, you know the drill. Weekends are a short-lived thrill Sad to see the old slave mill Grinding slow but grinding still Cover on it over till it's still Take until they've had their fill Sure hurts to see the old slave mill <laughs> Grinding slow but grinding still A new pattern of oppression replacing the old slave system was growing up in the South. The plantation owners shorn of their source of power by emancipation, devised new methods of reducing the freedman to a state of peonage that would keep him bound hand and foot to the plantation. Terrorist societies, such as the Ku Klux Klan, swept down upon Negroes who dared to protest the violation of their rights. Any Negro community which sought to defend its civil liberties soon found its churches and schools a smoking shambles. Soon, as a result of this terror, the constitutional amendments adopted after the Civil War became little better than a mockery of freedom. When I met delegates at Negro conventions who had lived through the horrors of seeing their families massacred, their churches and schools burned to the ground, and their homes left in smoke and ruins, I realized the ridiculousness of the contention that my work was over. Constitutional amendments guaranteeing the Negro equality and fair play looked very well in print, I reminded my friends. But law on the statute book and law and the practice of the nation are two very different things and sometimes very opposite things. What were the 14th and 15th Amendments worth to the victims of the Klan terror? What did the ballot mean to men reduced to a state of peonage? At the South, I argued in speech after speech the Negro dependent upon his enemy for his daily bread cannot long vote or act contrary to the will of those
to whom he must necessarily look for food and raiment which he must have. It is a grand thing to have rights secured by constitutional provisions and by legal enactments, but without a public opinion and the government to enforce them, they are a mockery. To be one half freeman and the other half slave, to be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. To those who called for a halt to agitation on the Negro question, I replied, we certainly hope that the time will come when the colored man in America shall cease to require the special efforts to guard these rights and advance their interests as a class. But that time has not yet come and is not even at the door. When the doors of nearly every workshop in the land are closed against the colored race and the highest callings open to them are of a menial character, while a colored gentleman is compelled to walk the streets of our large cities like New York unable to obtain admission to public hotels, while staterooms are refused in our steamboats and berths are refused in our sleeping cars on account of color, and the Negro is a byword and a hissing at every corner. The Negro is not abolished as a degraded caste, nor need his friends shut up shop and cease to make his advancement in the scale of civilized life a special work. Abolition, today, today. Once upon a time, a man got fucked. Now, how is that for a story? Because that's the story of black people in America. <laughs> you all don't know you black yet. You think you just people. Let me be the first to tell you that you are all black. The moment these Dutch motherfuckers set foot here and decided they white, and you get to be black, and that's the nice name they call you. Let me paint a picture of what's waiting for you on the shore. You arrive in America, land of opportunity, milk and honey, and guess what? You all get to be slaves, split up, sold off, and worked to death. The lucky ones get Sunday off to sleep, fuck, and make most slaves and all for what? For cotton, indigo, for a fucking purple shirt. The only good news is the tobacco your grandkids are gonna farm for free. It's gonna give a shitload of these white motherfuckers cancer. And I ain't even started yet. A hundred years later, you're fucked. A hundred years after that, fucked. A hundred years after you get free, you still getting fucked out of job and shot at by police. You see what I'm saying? This guy gets it. I like him. He's getting angry. Angry is good. Angry gets shit done. Confusion.
Sacrifice for something worthwhile. Let the motherfucker burn. Let it all burn. With this warning to the American people, I bring my story to its end. To be one half freeman and the other half slave. To be a citizen and yet treated as an alien, to be a man and yet not be a man among men, may do for monsters, but not for genuine manhood. Abolition, abolition, today. abolition, today. abolition. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.